recurring theme so far on this podcast has been the challenges facing traditional retail in the bike industry. We've talked at length about the growth in online retail and the pressures this places on our local bike shop. But given this changing landscape, is it all really doom and gloom for the retail end of the business? What can retail do to combat this challenge? How can it stay relevant in today's marketplace and build lasting connections with customers and still be the center of the local cycling community? Today, we're joined by the founders of two businesses that are shaking up the traditional retail model on both sides of the Atlantic, one pioneering the boom in the London bike coffee shop scene, the other the fast-growing North American mobile mechanic business. Let's meet today's guests. I'm joined by Chris Guillaume, who's the CEO and co-founder of Bellofix, and Sam Humpherson, who is one of the co-founders of Look Mum No Hands. So welcome, guys. Hey, Alex. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. No problem. No problem. So today, I guess we're looking at um, we're looking at a subject that that really came out in a couple of the other podcasts that I've done so far. The, the most notable one, you know, we were talking about direct to consumer sales, and there's a lot of things that are really pressuring the you know the, the traditional bike retailer at the moment. Now, you guys have both set up businesses which kind of disrupt that that, that sort of traditional retail model. Um, and we're going to talk in a little bit more detail about, about both of your businesses. I guess I wanted to start off by sort of asking both of you, um, you know, how do you assess the retail landscape in your market um, right now? Um, is it as tough as people say it is? Let's get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I suppose, when you say my market. I think if you just talk about the cycling market in the UK and then perhaps what the market we're actually shooting for now is a little different to that. Um, but having been in sort of traditional bicycle retail for the best part of 20 years in the UK. I think times are really tough for small independents. And I mean, it's the same story, really. Lots of pressure from online and, as you say, direct sales. And then also where we are in London, in the southeast of the UK, there are large multiple chains that are also very aggressive in their expansion and their position. And you know, they have a huge buying power and great locations. And it's, it's very hard to be a small kind of traditional family bike store that's got its own little niche nowadays. You have to kind of find a find an edge somewhere. Yeah, yeah. What, what about you, Chris? Yeah, well, obviously our, our model's a little different. I mean, we're a, we're a mobile bike shop. And, um, you know, obviously being, being in North America, we started here in Vancouver, Canada, uh, January 2013 with, with an idea and put one on the road and we, we evolved into a franchise concept and we'll have, uh, we'll have, it looks like we'll have about 60 more franchises sold here by the end of the month. So we really, um, we, we, we haven't experienced any downtime. I guess you could say it's, it's been a pretty fast growth and, and pretty aggressive growth. So I think, you know, the challenges in the UK are probably the, the same challenges in North America for a lot of the traditional bike shop owners. And it's getting tougher and tougher. The, the direct-to-consumer model, which you, which you mentioned earlier, uh, is, is is having a major impact on, on the businesses. So we've experienced tre- tremendous growth so far. And, and the, the franchise partners that have been on the road have experienced tremendous growth. So a bit of a, a different model than the traditional. But I think there's no question if, if you're a traditional bike shop and you're not doing anything different, uh, it's a challenging time. Yeah. So, so I, I guess that leads me on to ask you, you know, where did the idea from Velofix come from? I, I guess you and your business partners were not necessarily in the bike industry beforehand. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, David Zalza, who's my, uh, one of my partners, was uh, a professional soccer player. So he actually played in, in Europe, came back from Scotland. Uh, I was more of a runner. We both started riding bikes and, and we were, you know, to be honest, we were very frustrated with the challenges that we had at, at local bike shops here in terms of the service levels, getting our bike back, 
um, the quality of work. And we partnered up with Boris Martin, who was actually in the industry, a young guy going to university, ex-semi-pro rider, uh, was working in a bike shop. And, and we just thought something had to um, something had to change. There had to be a better way to do it. And, and really, we built the business based on what we wanted. You know, a big sprinter van with a coffee machine, a flat screen TV, wireless, that you could book on your smartphone and, and the bike shop would actually come to your house and make it a lot more convenient and a lot more efficient. So that, that's really how it started. There, there was nothing more than that. And, um, you know, we thought uh, at the time we looked at the, the industry overall and there's not too many uh, retail industries left where there's a lot of independent players. And in the bike world, there is. And we thought there had to be some consolidation and uh, there had to be some changes. And then obviously the direct-to-consumer model was blowing up in everything from consumer electronics to shoes. And we looked at it and thought, man, the, the bike industry is going to go through some changes. And to be totally honest with you, it, it's changed way faster than we thought it would. You know, right. obviously Trek's, annou- Trek's announcement sped things up. Canyon coming to, to North America sped things up. So there's a lot of brands in the industry that are, that are looking for a way to get direct to the consumer and and that's where we come in. Were you surprised when you, you know, when as you got into to the idea of starting up this business and you started to learn more and more about the bike business? Were you, I mean, were you surprised by by things about how the bike industry works and operates? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I came from a consumer packaged goods background, so I, I I've sold to Costco and Walmart and, and the big big retailers, so definitely more of a consolidated channel. So. Yeah, it was it was very surprising how fragmented it was. It was very surprising that there was really no dominant players. I mean, obviously, specialized in track, you can say are, are dominant players, but you know they don't control massive amounts of the market that that you look at in the consumer packaged goods industry. And um, it, it was surprising. I mean, it was very surprising to us. It was very surprising to to be uh, to be blunt with you. How many people felt the same way we did about the quality of service that they were getting from their local shop? It just it hadn't really evolved. So. Those were surprising things uh, for us, and and obviously they fit in well with our business model. But um, we we just didn't find there was a lot of um, retailers out there doing things differently. And um, you know it's good to be on the phone with Sam. I mean, I, I, we visited the the two locations uh, last year and absolutely loved it. Loved the environment, loved the atmosphere, loved the quality of people in there. We uh, everywhere we go, we try to buy socks. I, I wear my socks, uh, my little mom no socks uh, when I'm riding, and um, but. You know, they're they're a great example of, of guys that are doing things differently. You you can't just keep doing in any industry. You can't just keep doing what you've done for twenty years or fifty years and, and think you're going to be successful. So, um, exactly, there, there's, there's, yeah. I guess one of the things I see a lot is there are people that do expect to just keep doing the same things the same, and they're, and they're the ones that that are you know complaining about the change in the industry that's happening that they really can't control. Instead of you know adapting and finding new ways to. Um, to stay in business, right? Um, I guess, so Sam, talk us through, you know, when you guys started Look Mum, the whole bike coffee movement hadn't really exploded in London. And, you know, what, I guess, what led you to set it up? Was it sort of by design or more by luck? Or, you know, you found yourself kind of at the epicenter of the the sort of London cycling coffee culture within a few years. How, How did that happen? I like to say it was all by uh, <laughs> carefully considered a five-year plan that we've been following diligently since we opened in 2010. But um, I think it's a little combination of design and good timing and good fortune and having a, a good a good team, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original idea was, was pretty simple, really. I, I've been in the industry, usually on the workshop side of things, for a long time. And my other business partner, Lewin, has been in independent 
coffee shops and cafes and we you know, kind of we always kicked around the idea of trying to you know do a do one site with multiple multiple uses um so the the coffee shop come workshop was the was the sort of simple concept and there's so many nice nice synergies there cyclists spend, spend a lot of time in cafes and uh also you know the opening hours kind of kind of complement each other and um, workshop and bring a nice atmosphere to to the coffee shop side of things and, and, and vice versa so we just kind of got started really and it was a uh, good timing i think in we opened in 2010 and that was just when cycling kind of in london became a big news story for a few different reasons but there was a lot of policy shifts and policy shifts from the sort of local government so the the boric bikes the cycle high school kicked off in 2010 and the whole first raft of serious cycling infrastructure kicked off and suddenly the media story was that london's becoming a cycling friendly city and then place you know we happened to pop up just at that right time and it was like wow it's so cycling friendly it's even got cafes for cyclists and we sort of gathered momentum really quickly um and yes it's been i think as as you said there's been a the cycling and coffee thing has, has sort of kicked off since then. It's been a real pleasure to see lots of other people all feeling inspired to open similar, or very different, also lots of different takes on the same basic combination. Are you finding that, does that make your life more difficult? Is it more competitive out there? Do you, you know, do you have to sort of fight harder to, to grow and keep customers and that sort of thing? I, I don't think so. It's, it's interesting being in a few different sectors. There's almost like, I mean, coffee itself is quite a, Coffee shops quite a fascinating um, sector. There's almost in a, in a sort of urban situation. There's almost no upper limit to how many cafes one street can sustain. I'm sure if you, yeah, I mean if you look at someone like Starbucks or something, you, you look at like one one main road, they'll open four or five branches within a or two of each other, and so the competition isn't necessarily a a, a big big problem. I think there's many of us fighting for the cyclist cafe market. Would would you say that, um, I mean, how much of your business now has gone beyond the kind of cycling specific? I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're obviously a very successful just local cafe, bar in the evenings, event space. You attract a lot of people who are not cyclists, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose our, we've been sort of, our sort of holy trinity is uh, bikes, pretty cool in London at the moment. Sort of, um, I don't know what the right term, new wave coffee or artisan coffee or whatever term you want to use for it but you know coffee from seriously trained baristas is very popular in the last five years and then we're also doing um, pretty incredible selection of uh, craft beer from local breweries that has also been a real sort of uh, flavor of the last few years so we've, we're having a foot in each of those camps we've um, managed to sort of feature highly on all sorts of what's what's you know we're, we're so hot in london right now it's uh, a <laughs> <so, laughs> <laughs> you, know, you get to go on the, the coolest bike shop list the coolest coffee shop list and the coolest beer lists you know it's all um, it's all helping that's the only three lists you want to be on yeah <laughs> there's not much music is there you need to put a, a beer cooler in the back of your vans Chris well that's the thing we uh, so I mean we joke about that we, we launched here in Vancouver which is uh, for Canada a pretty good climate you know so we had the coffee machine but now we've got trucks and you know we've got trucks in Phoenix we've got trucks in San Diego we got trucks in Kona, Hawaii, and every time I go visit these guys, it's the exact same thing. It's like, man, we need we need uh, we need an air conditioner and a fridge. So um, you, you've got some some regional differences in our business, but you know, I, I think uh, what Sam said is is bang on. I I know that when uh, when I travel and and I've spent 
quite a bit of time in the U.S. Obviously, in the last twelve to eighteen months, um, that's exactly what that's exactly what I look for. That's exactly what we look for. We want we want to experience different things. You know, I don't want to go into Starbucks. I, I want to find a local coffee shop. I want to find every time we go for dinner or we sit down at the bar. I want to have a pint from the local brewery. You know, I, I want to try try that local experience. And I think there's a lot of us like that out there. And um, it's it's interesting to see that evolve. But you know, it, it's no different. Uh, in London than it is. We were just in Austin, Texas for a week as we launched down there um, or in Vancouver or in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And, um, you know, th- those those guys that are and, and women that are doing things differently and they're adding local flair with not only coffee and beer, but uh, food. Um, it, it's great to see great to see those uh, those successes come out. And, um, you know, I, I think I think the community wants to support that. Yeah. I, listen, I've got a question for you, Chris. You bring up an interesting point, right? You're you know, you travel around, you go to different places, you go somewhere new, you, you want to look up a cool, cool spot to go and have a coffee and a beer. And maybe it's related to a bike shop as well. That's all great. Some people might say that you're in the business of putting those people out of business. <laughs> Is, well, that, yeah, I fair? mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I guess you know, it's, more, it's, it's more about how the two can coexist, maybe. Well, yeah, and and I think it's uh, it's an interesting comment because I'll, I'll tell you this: when we launched our business, you know, nobody would sell to us um, because we weren't bricks and mortar. We weren't a traditional bricks and mortar. So, so when you major say suppliers, what? Right. Okay. I was just going to ask that. You mean bike industry suppliers would not let yeah. you open up accounts and and purchase goods? Correct. Yeah. Correct. We had to. You know, we're very very well capitalized company. We spent a lot of money on our back end infrastructure with our booking system, our inventory management, the truck, the branding. But they would not sell to us because we weren't traditional bricks and mortar. So it was a frustrating process for us to get into the industry. Well, now at at six, sixty trucks. Everybody wants to sell to us and, and everybody wants to do business with us. But, you know, I had a comment from a guy the other day who kind of said something along the same lines and said, oh, you know, you guys are just a big, big company. <laughs> you know, and I kind of laughed. I said, in three years, we went from a company where nobody would sell to us to now we're the big, you know, we're the big, big company. But the reality is all of our owners are local people. You know, we're mm-hmm. a franchise business. So so the guy in, in the Bay Area or the lady in St. Louis or... You know, the, the gentleman that owns Denver and Boulder, they're all local people. They're in their community. So, you know, we, we view ourselves as a local company. We we support charity events. We do events in the community. So, um, yeah, we're not, you know, I don't think VeloFix has put any bike shops out of business. Um, I think the internet and online has had a, a way a way larger impact on the industry as a whole. Quite frankly, you know, when we launch into markets, we go and introduce ourselves to, to bike shops. A lot of events... We do. We do in, in partnership with local bike shops. So, you know, we're uh, we're at the end of the day. You know, we are a mobile bike shop. I think the the good ones and, and my uh, experience has always been in business is you know the the good the good operators are always going to survive. And the guys that are very successful at business that I've met don't take the approach of oh it's it's one or the other. It's hey let's go out and get people on bikes. You know, obviously the more people riding bikes, the better for all of us. Whether you own a coffee shop or a or a bike shop or whatever it is. So yeah, I, I think when we first started, there was definitely some some negative uh, feedback and comments. But you know, we haven't experienced that. You know, when we've launched it, uh, it it we've we've tried to get into the community and support the community. So we we really haven't experienced any backlash yeah i got just a few sort of maybe let's call them logistical questions about your your service the first one was whether do customers pay a premium to to have you guys come to them and fix their bike rather than taking it to a bike shop uh no they don't no our our labor rates and north america are are 69 dollars an hour plus tax 
That's our, our labor rate. That's our entry level service package. So that would be in line with, uh, with what I would say a quality bike shop is in, in pretty much every uh, city we operate in. Obviously, there's some variances. You know, some uh, bike shops in the Bay Area of San Francisco probably have a higher labor rate than Cincinnati, Ohio, for example. But we yep. feel we're in line with with bike shops. And obviously, the reason we can do that is is we don't have the overhead. You know, we're uh, we're a pretty lean business from that perspective. So uh, we don't charge a premium. We don't charge call out or fuel surcharges or anything like that. Um, and and we haven't needed to. You know, it, it's a profitable business for our franchise partners. Um, we make we make the same margin as, as bike shops do. Obviously, on uh, parts and accessories, you know, we buy that from all the major suppliers. Uh, we we sell product at suggested retail pricing. You know, we don't discount product. Our customers tend to be people that uh, value the convenience factor, value the the one on one time with the mechanic. So, um, you know, they're looking for quality products on their bike. They're not, in most cases, looking for deals. Yeah. Next one I, I'm, I wanted to ask you was, um, is, is there a typical profile of franchisee that you're seeing applying um, to buy a Velofix franchise? And, and related to that, do you look for specific, a specific profile of person? Um, I, you know, I think there, there's one thing that, that everybody has in common. There's a passion for cycling there. So that, that would be a commonality between all of them. But we've got two models. We've got what we call an owner-operator model. That's somebody that's a mechanic that wants to own their own business, that will, that will operate the truck and run the business himself. And then we have what we call an investor model. And that's somebody that wants to invest, buy Velofix. Typically, they're buying multiple franchises, and then they're going to hire people to run it. So within each one of those, I don't know if there's a, a specific uh, template of, of what that person looks like. Obviously, there has to be a passion for cycling. There has to be a connection to the community. Uh, they, there's a belief that the current setup in, in the retail industry is not working all that well, and, and there is a future in, in, in a mobile type of setup. So uh, we, we've got both kinds. I mean, quite frankly, in the U.S., the majority of our uh, franchise partners are uh, investors that are purchasing multiple franchises and, and putting them on the road. And just remind us how much a franchise costs. Uh, the franchise fee is twenty five thousand, and then the van and the Velofix build out of the van. So what you'd see on the website, the picture of the van is is approximately ninety thousand, and they can lease that they can lease that whole build package out. So for for about fifty thousand dollars, you're you've got the keys in your hand and you're you're operating. You've got a lease payment on your truck. You've got insurance and things like that. But it's a pretty low cost entry to get into uh, a franchise business. It's obviously a low cost entry when you compare it to opening a bike shop. Yeah. And, and just last question. What's the, um, there's obviously an ongoing sort of, you take a percentage, a franchise fee. How, how does that part of it work? Correct. We, we take an 8% royalty off of gross sales. And then there's a 2% co-op marketing fund that's spent back into local markets and spent back into national campaigns. Okay. Sam, what's the landscape look like for mobile mechanics in the UK? I know uh, it was probably two or three years ago we looked at it with Canyon and it, there was one network that was kind of not very well organized. And in the end, we didn't end up, it was too early to do anything with them. Has that, has that changed in the last sort of two, three years? It's interesting. It's, um, I don't know if anyone's really cracked that. Certainly no, one, no, no multiple. No one's, no one's done it repeatedly. There are a few individuals who have very successful mobile businesses um, or, or, or even collection and pickup type services. I guess you and I both know Bruce. Mm-hmm. He um, has made his own little niche doing that in southwest London. Yeah, I mean, he, um, he was doing that before, <laughs> way before anybody else, but I guess just one guy on his own and he wasn't, you know. But, but I, I don't, I think um, one of the larger 
can't, it might even have been Wiggle. Someone, someone's trying to launch a kind of fully, fully integrated online pick up and uh, pick up and drop, drop back kind of service. But um, I, th- I think the mechanic market is still very much uh, shop based in the UK at the moment. Um, and I mean, having done it for a long time myself, I, I've had several sort of frustrations, I suppose, with the traditional, traditional mechanics position of being uh, stuck in the workshop out the back kind of the sideshow to the to the shop floor and you know there are lots of ways that i, I felt your standard bike shop just wasn't providing a very good service for for the customers who needed who needed mechanics yeah like like what for example well the, the simple ones in london i always found most places i worked in central london would open at nine and would shut at five which you know it's kind of makes sense if you're trying to organize a rotor in a shop without having loads of staff cutting off and shit but if you've got if you've got a job, that that kind of makes it pretty difficult to get your get your bike in and get it home again without disrupting your day now. So one of the the real I think the real advantage that we had when we first opened is because we were a cafe, we, we were open cafe hours. So we were open at seven thirty a.m. and then I'd run a run a, two mechanics on shift for a day or three, and we're here until seven thirty p.m. So we'll fit around pretty much anyone's working day. And being centrally located, you can just load the public transport options if you need to continue your general work or there's forest bikes just around the corner. You know, we're not far from anywhere in central central London. Um, and I suppose combine that with the opportunity to have an, a great coffee or some breakfast and drop it in and a beer or a glass of wine, a cup of tea when you pick your bike up, it kind of becomes a, a, a nice bonus part of your day rather than a rather than a chore. And I think the other the other frustration I think that lots of people have with the sort of standard bike shop model is you're not necessarily putting your bike in or discussing your job with the mechanic who's going to work on it. So you know, you'd normally have a I guess a, a, a nice, helpful, but maybe not particularly mechanically adept salesperson taking your bike from you and giving it back. And I always really enjoyed the interaction of seeing the customer with the bike. You know, it's kind of the traditional mechanic stereotype kind of grumpily hidden at the back and you feed broken bikes in one end and fixed bikes come out the other and they don't have to talk to anybody all day. But um, <laughs> for me, that wasn't really working. I, I, you know, I love fixing bikes, but I like, I like talking to uh, talking to the customer. Well, I think you get a much better service all around. You get a much happier transaction. You get the job done exactly how it should be done. and uh, it, it works much better on so many so many levels. Yeah, it's it's. I mean... It's ironic that this, these themes apply to both of your businesses, don't they? You know, the idea of, of, of having more face-to-face contact with customers and having a more flexible schedule to work around people's, you know, working days and other commitments. I think you've got to, got to embrace that. Um, going, back, going back to the, the sort of retail landscape, you know, we, we, I managed to sell pretty much all of the spares that we fit for the bikes. I managed to sell them at full, at full retail price. Um, which is which is which is a challenge given that pretty much anyone can pull out their iPhone right in front of me and, and find, say, Shimano spares pretty much for I don't know, a couple percent over what I pay for them wholesale. But the kind of environment that we present, the experience that we present, and the um, the service that we present means that people are happy to to, to not not quibble with us over over those those prices. I mean, 
for I think for most uh, for most workshops, kind of the rule of thumb is if your if your labour charge is covering covering the mechanic's wages, you make your money on the make your money margin on on parts and accessories that they're fitting. You never have. Do you ever have that? I mean, you read about this with with bike shops having people come. You know, they'll walk into the shop with a I don't know a Shimano component that they've bought um, online from Wiggle or Chain Reaction at, at less than the trade price that the shop can buy it at and they're bringing it can you fit this to my bike (laughs) and the normal answer is yes with a with a with a smile if i can master one as kind of you alluded to earlier on like you can't really you can't just stand there and rail against this this market because it is it is what it is i can't i can't do anything about it really other than provide the customer with a choice and and hope that they they appreciate what you're doing and the value in it. Um, but if someone does want to turn up with the group that they bought from uh, Chain Reaction, then I I just make sure my labour charge is sufficient to make sure the job's worthwhile for me. Um, so I think the, the one the one thing mechanics have been guilty of in the past, perhaps, is, is being a bit um, nervous about charging for what they're worth as an hourly rate. And um, I, I think the, the one thing we we do do when customers supply all of the parts themselves is make sure we absolutely have every minute that we spend the bike charge for it and they, they understand that i mean like people aren't people aren't unreasonable um and it's you can't you can't ignore the fact that these prices are out there um, yeah you can generally explain your position in a, in a considered and um, calm way and most people will understand it yeah i think that's a that's a great point you make sam i mean the reality is I saw something a while ago that said the internet can't fix your bike. And yeah. and the reality is, you know, we, and we've seen that in our business, obviously our, our business is a little different, but we see a lot of customers buy frames and components and wheel sets from, from all the different online retailers. And then they book a Velofix service to come and build the bike for them. Obviously we embrace that. We do, you know, we do that. Would I rather sell them the, you know, the Durace group set? Absolutely. But, you know, our business model um, is, is the convenient factor in coming and servicing people's needs when they need it. And the reality is we run into that same situation. And, and once in a while, you'll be, you'll be putting something on somebody's bike and they say, oh, I saw that on Wiggle for X price. Well, you know, Wiggle's not going to come and install it for you. And, and Wiggle's, not gonna, you know, Wiggle's not gonna provide that direct um, hands-on experience. So, you know, that's one thing that's really shocked me about this business is you talk to bike shops and the service part of their business is actually quite small. And when, when you look at their overall revenue and they don't value it, they don't charge enough for it. They don't make sure that they're making, making margin on it. But because as you said, you know, helmets and shoes and all these things are getting the, the pricing keeps coming down and down and down. And you're not uh, a local bike shop's not going to com- compete with Wiggler chain reactions. They just can't buy the volume. It just, there's no economies of scale for them. So instead of, you know, complaining about that all day long, figure out a way to make more margin on other things. And our business model is, you know, we don't discount. We don't discount our labor rates. We don't discount our product. If, if you value this service, you, you know, you're going to pay for it. And quite frankly, if, if, if somebody's grinding us about the price of a set of wheels that they want to buy online, you know, this is our price. If, if you want to go buy them on Wiggle, that's great. But I can assure you that 90% of those, those people probably can't take off their rear cassette and put on a new one <laughs> and, and that's where you know and that's where the business model for us and, and for you i think kicks in is yeah people are gonna we can't at the end of the day people are gonna buy product where they're gonna buy product it really becomes up to us to figure out how we add value 
in our businesses, right? I think um, I'll be interested in how you, how you guys tackle tackle this one because you know, our, our kind of my big selling point really is as well as being open, dipping early and, and late, um, I, we try and turn around everything same day. So your bike is not off the road for, for a few days while I order in the parts or, you know, you've got a pretty hefty stock holding of something to cover almost everything. And we see a huge variety of bikes here from race bikes of di2 to mountain bikes to bromptons to dutch bikes and generally unless it's something pretty pretty drastic we can fix it for you there and then and, and that's where people don't argue kind of you know you bring me the bike at nine i can get it back to your five it's fixed um you can mess around on the internet for a few days ordering parts if you want but um we can do it straight away how, how do you do that out of a van how much um how much stock do you advise you or franchisees carry around with you or, or are they yeah assessment of the job before they head out what's the yeah i mean that that's a great question and, and that is that was our single biggest challenge when we launched our business so the two biggest challenges we had was were route optimization so the way our our back-end booking system works is you put in your postal code or zip code in the united states and it brings up times and dates were available in your neighborhood and what we do is we route optimize the truck so you're eliminating traffic you're eliminating going from the north to the south back to the north again you're you're working in small clusters each day so that was obviously a big expenditure and a lot of time to figure out how that worked the second biggest one became inventory management because as you said we're not sitting on half a million dollars worth of inventory so we need to be a lot more efficient so our franchise partners have storage lockers which they will keep backup inventory of, of certain products and then the van typically can hold between ten and fifteen thousand dollars worth of uh, product now we've got an inventory management system that is a, a min max system so mechanics can go in and set up what quantities they want in the van the other thing that happens when you when you go in and book you can put in you, you put in what the issue is so hey i'm riding a you know i'm riding cervello s5 i've got a problem with my bottom bracket and the mechanic gets that that gets that information. So you may go and book on Monday for a Thursday at two o'clock. The mechanic, you know, our mechanics are very good. They can look at that and say, okay, here's, I think this is probably what the issue is. Here's what I need. So our close rate is, is very high. Our close rate is about 94%. So that was a major issue when we started the business to make sure we had that. There's no question, just like you said, once in a while you get somebody that's got uh, an old part or they've got something we just don't have. But in most cases, we close that job uh, when we come out and, and, uh, and do the job. And and it takes time. It takes time. It takes time for the mechanic to figure out, um, you know, what products he needs, what products are trending. But the other thing we also try to do is we don't offer everything to everybody. You know, we have a pretty, pretty um, tight list of products we have available, colors, sizes, those kind of things. So it, we, we, we don't have. Yeah, we, we'll run a similar, run a similar thing. I don't stock twenty-five tires in seven different shades of. of the rainbow is kind of i've got a great tire this is the one i recommend do you want it yeah you, you've got to kind of that. stand by the products you stock and um you know sell, sell good stuff that also, happen, also has a good um good margin as you say um i mean i imagine for you guys the moment you have to go to a job twice that's kind of that's your uh that's your margin out the window isn't it you need to go back um, absolutely yeah you're you're your your profit uh, your profit definitely takes a big hit if you're making multiple visits. So that's why that inventory management for us is so important. And as you said, you know, pick certain products and stand behind them. I mean, that's why people are coming to you. That's why they're booking with us. Is that that mechanic is that expert? 
they're looking for, to that mechanic to say, hey, here's the tire I recommend you ride. And, and that becomes, um, you know, for us, it's important to our business because we just cannot, we don't have the space. We don't have the, uh, the structure to, to have, you know, five different tire manufacturers in four different sizes. It, it just doesn't work in our, in our business model. And our, you know, the one thing you said earlier, which I think is great, is the feedback we get from our, our customers. This, the, obviously, convenience is a critical piece, but the one-on-one time they get with their mechanic. You know, that, that time they, they're face to face with a mechanic and bike shots can be very intimidating. You know, it's tough. It, it's, it's, it, you walk in and you may not know the names of all the parts on your bike. And, um, it can be intimidating to stand there and talk to somebody in a, in a room where you feel like everybody's looking at you. So for us, that one on one time in the van with the mechanic to walk through what the issues are and to ask those questions, we, um, you know, we, we find that is, is one of the biggest things that people enjoy is they just feel comfortable that they can ask maybe silly questions or what they think is a silly question to the mechanic and the mechanic can walk them through it. I mean, my experience with bike shops and quite frankly, we probably wouldn't have started this business if, if all the bike shops turned bikes around in a day. You know, the reality is most bike shops are seven to 10 days in North America to get your bike back. And you know, the, the experience I had, I, I never met my mechanic in probably three years of going to a couple different bike shops. So I never, I never knew who was working on my bike. And those are the things that, that we hear from a value standpoint with us is, when somebody books at two o'clock on a Thursday, we show up at two o'clock on a Thursday and, and fix their bike. And, and that's just, you know, that's kind of what the model is based on. Yeah. You, you, you touch on a, on an issue. I, uh, I wanted to talk about actually, Chris, this was, you know, the idea of how particularly the retail end of the industry approaches staffing um, and, and things like, you know, the, the, the people that it employs, the way that it trains them. I think it's, you know, this is certainly not all retailers, but uh, there it's quite common in bike retail that people hire staff because they're into bikes rather than hiring staff who are good at that job, right? That they're good at, at giving good customer service and, and those things. Yeah, Alex, where a lot of, a lot of bike staff, they're into bikes and they don't, they don't command very much in the way of wages. Right. That, yeah, that's <laughs> a second, another problem, yeah. You also, you also find that, you, you know, you may be employer... A kind of fairly useless seventeen-year-old, but by the time that he or she is a a, a pretty useful twenty-four-year-old, yeah, you don't, you, your your business can't can't pay them the wage that they need, and they move on and get a proper job, and the, you, the sequence starts again, and um, that's a real tough um, tough one to crack. So, I mean, how, I mean how, how do you approach that? You've obviously got a you know you're employing sort of relatively, I won't say low skilled, but it, it's a sort of part-time type type positions how how do you i think having had 20 years on the receiving side of the the equation um i'm trying to approach my kind of role as an employer in a in a in a better better manner so i i'm pretty good on staff retention in the workshop Mm -hmm. um we we the workshop does okay it's it's running at a you know a reasonable profit it it has quite a small overhead in that it takes a small footprint of a bigger premises where we've got loads of other stuff going on that helps us pay all of those standing costs. Um, so my, I have a few criteria for my mechanics, and one is that they are competent and experienced because they work unsupervised a lot of times. But the, the second one is that they are, um, this is going to sound a bit, uh, nice people who, who are sociable, who, who, want to, who want to talk to the customers. And I say that's that's kind of sometimes unusual for a, a, a bike mechanic um so you know we try and get people who are happy being customer facing who who want to talk to the customers who you know there's no such thing as a stupid question 
don't patronise. Um, you know, that was another another frustration, I suppose, with, with your normal bike shop atmosphere can be intimidating, as you said. Um, the cafe instantly presents a very different environment. I think our customers relax straight away because you're clearly you're welcome in the cafe. That's the whole point of the cafe. If you were in a cafe that people felt uncomfortable in, you wouldn't you wouldn't last very long. Um, so I think putting the workshop in in that environment instantly softens everything. People relax. Um, they know that some people kind of come in like pumped up for a fight when they're going to go and see the bicycle mechanic. They're expecting a confrontation or an argument, and you can see them relaxes them when they walk into the building. And then we end up with much more, um, I think, sort of fulfilling and easy interaction with the customers just because they're surrounded by the clink of coffee cups and the whir of the grinder and, you know, other people socialising and enjoying themselves. And I, I think uh, your one mechanic on their own in the van has that similar that similar effect. You know, I, I sometimes I walk into other bike shops and I've been doing it all, doing it all my adult life and you walk in and you, I still feel intimidated when I'm outnumbered by all of the sales staff kind of, eyeing me up you know, that, that's, that's not that's not a great environment to do business in I think yeah exactly um, do you I, I mean I guess you're fine with the staff you have in the cafe part it, it's there you're you know you're not necessarily looking for people that have bike industry experience in it, and it's just more about you know having good customer skills and all those other things that, that you look for in a um, in a cafe right yeah though because though, uh, everything's so kind of intermingled here uh, uh, a lot of our staff I don't know this is, they've been attracted to us because of the bike thing, but you know, a lot, a lot of our cafe staff have a thing for bikes. I'm always very proud of the number of staff who cycle to work and you know who who are into the whole the bike thing, even if they're not they're not bike mechanics. You know, kind of, you can't really escape the bikes here, so you're gonna, gonna have to at least tolerate them. Um, yeah. You know, in July when the Tour de France is on and everything's kicking off all over the place, it's nice. To, you know, it's nice to see everybody in the business excited about cycling. Yeah, I guess a question for both of you. Do you think the industry has a wage problem, right? I mean, it, it's historically and I guess still now, it's an industry that doesn't pay as much as, as some other um, sectors. People are attracted to it because they are, you know, I've seen the same thing working in other parts of the sports business, for example. People, people will do a lower paid job to work in an area that they're genuinely interested in and passionate about. And that's, that's the trade-off that has to be made is the knock-on in the bike industry that we end up getting, you know, a lower level of competence or experience as a result. It's difficult. I feel the industry has a sort of a, has a margin problem. Um, right, yeah. You know, I guess everyone might say that in their own industry, but in the, in the UK, it's pretty, it's pretty lean trying to run a bike shop, even at full price. So, you know, and I think that all feeds down into, you know, what is left, what is sustainable to pay decent staff. Um and it is a, it's a, it's a hard, I think it's a difficult business to, to operate in full stop. Yeah, I think it comes back to maybe what Chris was saying about the value, right? And if the customer has, appreciates the value of this skilled person who's fixing their, their bike and they're, they're prepared to pay for it, then that should filter, filter down to you know, wages and salaries and, and that sort of thing. But if there's, this, if there's this increasing pressure on margin and prices driving it down, it makes it very difficult, doesn't it? I mean, what, what I enjoy here, and I think what what you're doing as well, is I've kind of we've, we've you know we don't we don't do the traditional retail stuff, um, so we don't sell helmets and we don't sell shoes and we don't even sell bikes. Um, and I think all of that allows you to drill down and, and focus on labour and parts 
and both of which, if you price them correctly, you can run a successful business and you can pay your, you know, I'll pay my, I'll pay my, I'll pay my staff better than your average bike mechanic in London. Um, I also get fed and uh, fed and watered. <laughs> best coffee, <laughs> best coffee in any any workshop in London, I think. Yeah, I'll comment. I'll comment from our side of it, guys. I mean, the reality is, um, we've had a lot of mechanics come back into the business when when Velofix launched, and and we've we've had a lot of um, <clears throat> mechanics or people that worked at bike shops had left and gone on to do something else, and they've come back and bought a franchise because that glass ceiling gets hit pretty quickly, and it's not because the bike shop owner doesn't want to pay these the people what they're worth. It's just, it's getting harder and harder to do that. I mean, I, I know, I know what the real estate in London's like, take, take a city like Vancouver where the real estate's just going crazy. You know, that, that guy that had a bike shop on the corner, his costs have gone up probably 30 or 40% in the last five years and his margins have gone down. And that's the challenge is, is, as you said, it's a margin problem and the margins aren't going to get better. You know, the, the online retailers are just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the wiggles in the chain reactions of the world don't have the overhead from a, you know, uh, an independent uh, store shop overhead situation. So it's it's a major challenge. I mean, it, it's been great for us because we pay, uh, when I say we, I mean, our franchise partners employ their mechanics, but um, they make significantly more than they did in the shop. And they've got more upside to make because we want them out there driving revenue and, and increasing the average ring and helping customers buy other products. So um, they're, you know, they have a, a big incentive to, to do more services and, and generate higher dollars for their, for our franchise partners. So it's, it's a major challenge. I mean, it's, a, it's a tough one for them. It's a, it's a retail play that's getting eroded very, very quickly. And as you said before, I mean, mechanics, it, it, it blew me away when I got into this business, when I realized, you know, not all mechanics are certified. Um, which we, we make our mechanics get certified before they can go in the van. If they've been a mechanic for a long time, they can go to UBI or Barnett or Winterborn and challenge the exam, but they need to get certified. And it's, it's an industry where, you know, you're, you're going down a hill at, at 50K an hour or 60K an hour. You, you better make sure your bike's operating properly. And it's, uh, it's, it's been surprising to me that you've got mechanics, and I'm not saying they're not great mechanics, but they've never gone through a, a traditional certification process. Obviously, Shimano and SRAM has training, but... You know, it, it's a it's a very very skilled position, and I think for whatever reason, the bike industry there hasn't been a tremendous amount of value on those mechanics. So, you know, I think I think it is an important job, and I think they should be paid well. You know, you talk about motorcycle mechanics. We've got two or three guys in our system that are red sealed um, motorbike mechanics, and um, and when you get red sealed, you you can you can demand a certain wage. So, you know, I think in this industry, the good mechanics should be paid for what they're worth because they do an important job. And let's be honest, the, the technology is changing so fast with DI2 and disc brakes. And um, you look at what mountain bikes are like now. I mean, that there's a skill set that's required to work on these, on these bikes. And same thing, I, I would, you know, if I, I look at my road bike and um, I'm, I'm coming down a descent at 60 K an hour, I'm not trying to grind my local bike shop, you know, to, to get a $29 service. Like I want somebody that knows what they're doing that takes pride in their work. And I think for whatever reason in the bike industry, it just, it, it the, the mechanic is, is kind of the last guy on the totem pole. And, um, and it's, it's just been kind of interesting to watch that evolution. But what I love in our business is, is we talk to mechanics all the time and, and we hire new mechanics through our franchise partners and, you know, they've got flexibility. I think, uh, Sam, you mentioned earlier, you know, a, a traditional bike shop kind of open nine to five, you know, whether you're busy or not, you're sitting there, with our business, our, our mechanics set their own schedules. 
they can go in and block off two hours and, and go riding in the afternoon. Um, but there's a flexibility factor that's there. And then they've got the upside to make, you know, what I'd say is, is more than fair market value and, and, and be able to buy a house, be able to buy a, a condominium or apartment and, and live a good life. So it's, it's interesting. Because that's one thing that's really surprised me in the bike business where, you know, the actual, the actual people working on the bikes um, in a lot of cases are the lowest paid in, in the place and, you know, may, may not have any many opportunities outside of being stuck in the basement of the back yeah. room. You're also, Chris, I mean, it brings up a really, a really important point that you're empowering people and giving them a stake in their own success as well. And, and especially where you've got owner operator franchisees, you know, they've, they've got to be nice to customers because that's what's going to get them repeat business. And their, their success is kind of in their hands, right? Well, absolutely. I, I think, I think, and, and this, I'm just going to speak on my own experience and I'm not going to, I don't want to say this is universal, but my feeling in the past was going into to some bike shops is they kind of looked at me like, man, I don't know if this guy's coming back. So we are going to ring him up for as much as we possibly can. Now, maybe that was just the way I was feeling going in, but you know, maybe next time the guy comes in, he's dealing with another sales associate or there's another mechanic that's working on it. So I think you're bang on when we roll up to somebody's home or somebody's office, that mechanic is looking in the eyes of somebody saying, Hey, you know, this guy's going to book three or four times a year with us. And on the other side of it, our customers looking at the mechanic saying, man, I know this guy's coming back. And, and there's a bond that happens there. And, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a trust that gets um, developed because once again, the mechanic knows that, Hey, I got to do what's right for this guy. If he doesn't need a new chain, I'm better off to tell him, Hey, you don't need a new chain. Let's do it next time I come and uh, come and service you. And I think in, in a lot of the traditional bike retail environments, you don't have that same relationship. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just, that that's kind of based on my own experience. So Definitely that one-on-one time and, and that repeat customer provides a mechanic, I would say, more opportunity to build a relationship. Yeah. Okay, listen, I've got a, a final question for you both. Um, for, uh, two parts. First of all, uh, you know, what's bike retail going to look like in 10 years? Is it going to go the same way as you know, record stores, camera shops, etc.? cetera? And, and second part to that, if you were a bike shop owner right now, what would you be doing? You know, I, I don't think the bike shop's going to disappear entirely. Um, I mean, what looking at what's what's going on in London, I, I think just the 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 average independents are getting are getting squeezed. Really, there isn't there's not a market left for a sort of nondescript average bike store. And if you look at what the where it's going, kind of uh, that market is being grabbed by uh, a couple of big multiples. And but the independents are finding themselves niches, so they're they're squeezing out uh, what we what we see a lot of in london which i think is quite a unique market but there's a lot of very sort of small high-end bike stores selling i don't know the likes of parley or uh you know, super super nice Colnagos to a, a very particular very particular sector and, and then there's also other smaller bike shops that are totally kind of all about community i think if, if you can engage your your community involve them in your business um then they'll repay you with repay you with loyalty um i think if you're just doing nothing in particular and sitting there waiting for people to come in that that's that's where you're just gonna really sort of uh, be strangled and die i think and I, I don't know so i suppose if if i were i mean i suppose i am running a bike store to, <laughs> to, to some extent um but I, I think i think find out find out what you can do that people can't do online and engage engage your customers get get them involved get them to like you i mean i know this is how this is how i shop nowadays um, 
the internet is there for the boring stuff, you know. If I if I need some hacksaw blades or, or something like that, it's easy for me just to get online and buy them. But the, the transactions I I enjoy and I know I'm paying over the odds for, but I enjoy that of my local ones with my, my say my local bookstore where I, I love visiting there and I chat with the guy or my local deli where you get a great service from the the guys behind the counter and those those I, I enjoy those interactions and I enjoy visiting them and I wouldn't want to take them out of my life by doing all of my shopping online. So I think you've got to kind of try and try and tackle that kind of thing as, as well as just providing a service that is impossible to get online. So I suppose that's the good news for mechanics really. No matter how many bikes you sold online, you're still going to need someone to fix it when it breaks or help you put it together in the first place. So that's that's not going anywhere, I don't think. Well said. <laughs> Chris? Yeah, I mean, I agree with with a lot of what Sam said. I think I think the good operators are always going to survive, right? You're going to have your niche players that are connected to the community that sell a quality product that provide an environment that people want to spend time in. You're going to have your big box, which you know they're going to grow and, and they're going to get stronger. I think you're going to have a lot of people in between that aren't adding any value that are going to no longer exist. I, I think that's going to be a big challenge. I think when you talk about the future of retail, um, you look at what we've done. We've launched Velofix Direct, so. Basically, any direct-to-consumer bike brand um, can use Velofix Direct as a platform. So when somebody buys a bike directly, they can use Velofix to deliver that bike, build it, safety check it, come back 30 days later and check the cabling and the brakes and make sure that everything's good. So I think the traditional bricks and mortar, I think you're probably going to have more showroom type of environment. So smaller stores, not a lot of inventory, more of a showroom demo center um, where you can sell product. Um, yeah, I, I think if, uh, if you're a bike shop owner today, as Sam said, you have to do something different. You have to create something that, um, that online experience can't provide. And, and the reality is, once again, as you said, most people, uh, there are the DIY people out there, but the reality is that the vast majority of, of people riding bikes today, um, either don't have time or they don't have the mechanical skill set to fix their own bikes. So that's always going to be required out there, but uh, it's interesting times. I mean, it, it's it's been exciting for us to get into the business and um, it's been exciting for us to see what's happening. And it, the reality, I think, is change change is coming. It's been it's been ongoing for two or three years. And um, and I think it's just going to speed up. I mean, online is just going to continue to grow at such a fast rate that the, the traditional retailer just has to adapt or they're not going to be here anymore. So there's a lot of different, you know, they, they say omni-channel, which gets used uh, everywhere, but that's the reality. I think the consumer is going to decide where and when they want service and where and when they want to buy their bike. And um, if you can't adapt and change to that, you're, you're probably not going to be around. Yeah. You, you didn't even say the, the obvious thing I thought you were going to say, Chris, about if, if you owned a bike shop, you'd sell it and buy a Velofix franchise. <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, you know what? I, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I, I would, my dream is to open a, um, a coffee shop, restaurant, um, uh, mechanic station. So I'm, I want to come over and, and sit down with Sam and talk about that because, um, Maybe I'll you, that, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we, I, I think, I think we can do a little, uh, we can do a little barter. And, and do it that way. But, um, you know, there's, as I said uh, before, I mean, I, I've spent time in, in, uh, in a couple of locations when I was over there and, and had a coffee with Teo. And, um, that's, that to me is, that to me is, is the, the people that are going to survive in this business because you can't, like, you just want to be part of that. You know, we went and, and rode and had coffee one morning. Another day we came by and had a meeting and had a pint and, and a bite to eat. And, you know, those kind of connections with the community are always going to be there. And, and that's what we tell our franchise partners is you have to get into the community. You have to connect. 
You have to do those events because people are going to shop and spend their money and support people that they like and that they want to be successful. And I think that's, that's critical. And I think no question, there's always going to be a percentage of people that want the cheapest price and, and that's all that matters to them. You know, that's not our customer. I, it doesn't sound like that's Sam's customer. You know, we want somebody that values that and, and price at the end of the day is not the driver. You know, we do, uh, we do surveys all the time and price at the end of the day is not the key driver for a lot of these people. Uh, there's a lot of other factors that are more important to them. And, um, you know, and I, as I said, I think companies that understand that and companies that can connect are the companies that are going to survive. So, yeah, good stuff. Listen, um, we're out of time, but I wanted to thank you both. Uh, part of the, the reason for doing this was to, you know, to talk about a couple of businesses that are maybe disrupting um, the retail landscape and, and look at what bike retail can do to to survive and be sustainable. And I think, you know, your your insights and experiences have, uh, have been been great for that. So thanks, Chris. And thanks, Sam. Uh, thanks for having us. That's a wrap for this month's episode. As ever, I'd love to hear any feedback on the topic we discussed today, either on Twitter at AJ and Palmer or in the comments section of this post on cyclingbusinesspodcast.com. Until next month. <laughs>